there and welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose. The Gontrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly to entrepreneurs, cannabis growers, product developers, and cannabis medicine researchers, all focused on making the most of cannabis normalization. As your host, I do my best to bring you original cannabis industry ideas that will ignite your own entrepreneurial spark and give you actionable information to improve your business strategy and improve your health and the health of cannabis patients everywhere. Today, my guest is Aaron Sullivan. Aaron Sullivan is founder and chairman of Trative, an online marketplace for wholesale licensed cannabis in Colorado. Today, we're going to talk about the Trative business model and the country's evolving cannabis sales channels. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me, Shango. So, Aaron, let's start at the very top. Let's give folks a general outline of the service you provide to give them a better context for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the ways that we use uh, a comparison uh, to help people understand what we do is we use Amazon. Now, Amazon uh, is a business-to-consumer uh, distributor. They um, both help process uh, and ship uh, and manage orders for you know millions of consumers um, all around the world. Now, the businesses that sell um, those products um, are not all owned by Amazon. Many of them are independent businesses that are that are utilizing the Amazon platform uh, to sell and distribute those products. Much similarly, we use a platform that helps concentrate producers, edible manufacturers, and cultivators uh, to sell their products directly to licensed retailers and dispensaries uh, in the markets that we serve, all using a technology platform that helps unify it um, in the center of that ecosystem. Right on. So um, I know there's a certain bar to entry because, you know, everybody would want to participate. And just to be clear for the listeners uh, in states other than Colorado, at this point, you really need to be both in Colorado and have a license by the state, correct? That's correct. Um, but actually, as of right now, we are doing our early onboarding for our beta customers in Oregon and California, depending on where they are in that market or that state uh, or those states. Um, and so I would encourage anybody in the California, Oregon, or Colorado markets to reach out to us, but only those in the Colorado market will we be able to serve really from the point that they sign up. The rest will have a little bit of a wait. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I expect that with how huge the California market's going to be, uh, getting started early is to everybody's advantage because, you know, everybody's going to suddenly want to, you know, get involved at once. So so if you can you know, get involved with your company, you know, get your things all set up and then just kind of hang out and wait for the rules making to happen, that's probably going to be to everybody's advantage. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the thing to remember in California specifically is that you know MRSA was passed last October and signed by uh, Governor Jerry Brown at the time, and um, that's taking effect in January of 2018. However, we're all going through uh, the rules-making process right now, and so so you know the state of California, the governor's office, has pretty clearly communicated to cannabis businesses that they can operate on the old collective model until January 2018, at which point there's going to be a hard switch to a more commercialized, tracked um, uh, system. Um, but again, that doesn't take effect until 2018. So those that are wanting to get involved early um, have a really good opportunity to do that now. Uh, it's just the patchwork of legislation and rules across the different municipalities need to be looked at closely to make sure that you're not, you know, 
breaking the law, frankly, um, uh, without really even knowing it. Right on, cool. Let, let's bring our attention back to the marketplace. Um, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the demo I got from Willie the other day, um, walking me through it. It was it was kind of like seeing a technology from the future, right? Colle mm -hmm. co college me would have been like, oh my God, I can't believe this exists, you know? So, mm -hmm. so it is a wholesale marketplace online, and, and what you're doing is connecting buyers and sellers. So do you find that having the buyers and sellers all in one place has caused the prices to settle into a small range or are the prices still very variable? You know, what we find is that is that the market as a whole is is not really much, it's, it's not more volatile um, or less volatile with us in place. However, when calling or inquiring about prices from business to business, you're now getting less um, spread. Um, on, on those prices, uh, or less variance, if you will. So the average is still moving where the average moves, but um, I'd say you have a tighter grouping towards that center mean or average than you would otherwise without us. Right on, that makes sense. And and also, you know, with that said, one of the things that I found interesting is that you still have um, premium level flour that is still pulling in premium prices because you mm -hmm. know maybe it's you know organic or veganic or it's made by a particular producer who's got a great reputation and therefore right. sells for a premium price. It's not like the marketplace is 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 bringing everybody to the middle so much that you can't right. be a premium processor with with high end prices. And I bet you your your customers really appreciate that. Yeah, I would I would even dare to say that that for our boutique and more specialized growers, they actually get more more differentiation now um, because you don't you have less uh, price variability amongst the different cultivators. Everybody kind of knows where their you know where their product falls. If you have really good organic greenhouse, uh, you know you might be getting uh, you know a higher price point um, along with those that have really good uh, indoor. You know every every vendor every buyer is different. Um, you know they have a different customer base. Maybe their customer base likes organic. Maybe their customer base really likes strong THC um, indoor hydroponic. Um, both of those can be, you know, quote unquote, quality premium products that achieve you a higher price point above average. Um, but you have to be able to find those things. You have to be able to find those distinguishing qualities to even make that decision. Um, and we're making it a lot easier for dispensaries and retailers to to um, uh, sort of consume that information in a, in a quick manner to make their purchasing decision. Are you finding that there's a particular uh, uh, section of the market that just doesn't sell as well as the other? For example, um, do you find that, you know, yeah, there's premium prices, but that stuff doesn't go as fast, or yeah, there's low-end stuff, but it doesn't go as fast. Is there is there a particular part of the market that is slower than the rest? Well, I can tell you there's a particular part of the market that's faster than the rest, right. and that's those with good quality product selling them at reasonable prices, that sells very quickly. <laughs> if you're trying to get something, if you're trying to get a price that's really outside of the quality of the product, you might get it, but you're going to wait a while. You're going to have to be patient. Um, you know, for those that produce, um, I would say, you know, outdoor, there's a big spread on outdoor. There are some that grow really exceptional outdoor, but by and large, it's always subpar compared to um, greenhouse or indoor. Um, and that they, they like to send that to manufacturing, you know. So 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 manufacturing can 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 find their nine hundred to eleven hundred dollar popcorn buds or or, or premature buds uh, or, or or even you know the shake and the byproduct. Um, that's of good high quality. Um, and and you know when it comes out the other side, it's largely going to look like what they would do if they got trimmed flour. Right. Um, but they're paying a lot less for that. And in the past, 
you know, when you're buying trim, you don't really know what you're getting until it gets to your doorstep. And, you know, we, we identify, you know, what's the level of shake on it? Is it sugar trim and some leaf? Is it all sugar? Um, you know, what's the reputation on, 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 on throughput or excuse me, yield um, off of their trim, off their, their previous harvest? You know, we have all that information. So when a manufacturer is looking to make a purchase, uh, there's just a lot more certainty in what they're buying. Um, than in the past. So I, I think I think across the spectrum, if you have something of quality, um, you know your buyers are all going to look different. They're all you know different shapes and sizes. But as long as it's 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 good quality for whoever the eye of the beholder is, and also priced reasonably, it will move fast. But if you're trying to get too much for it, it's it's going to take some time. I can imagine that you've got you've had a handful of experiences with with producers where either a they thought that their product should uh, demand more on the market that it does, but also the other side, people who um, you know they didn't have as much faith in their product now suddenly they're getting more for it because you know the market's got its own intelligence way Absolutely. beyond what the producer themselves thinks. No, that's totally true. You know, an example is we just launched, uh, you know, we're launching full um, uh, quality assurance and quality control testing here really soon, but we launched a beta in or, or in Colorado just to kind of refine the processes and make sure it worked. And, and we launched something very simple. Um, it's pesticide tested trim, period. But we went a little further than typical. Normally you have a lab that says, yeah, I tested it for pesticides. And everyone, you know, everybody knows there's been a lot of uh, um, apprehension on the market side to believe the results of those lab tests and, and to trust those recalls that are coming from the state. There's a lot of animosity that's 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 been generated because of that um, that sort of you versus us mentality with now the businesses in Colorado and the state who's coming down hard on pesticide testing. So we actually did proficiency testing with one of our labs. Um, we got the state levels from the Department of Ag on 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 the threshold. Uh, um, uh, parts per billion um, threshold for pesticide within the cannabis matrix, and our director of quality assurance and and um, and control, Gene Dugan, did a great deal of work to put this very simple or what one would think simple beta in test, and that's to ensure and guarantee that trim being purchased by manufacturers does not have pesticide in it. Now we didn't know how the market was going to react to that. It's the first time that's really been available and been validated by a third party, and we have dozens. Of manufacturers that now, even in a short two weeks after launching that beta, will not buy trim that is not certified by us. Clear market signal, that's what people want. They want safety, they want risk mitigation, they want a third party making sure that these things um, are, be done, are, are being done the right way, which, which de-risks their business, um, and they don't frankly have to do it themselves. And you know, that's a really great way for the industry to stay ahead of the regulators too, because if, if we are starting to come up with ideas like that, it, it takes the onus off the state or got to help us the federal government to enforce that in their way. It lets us to choose how our industry is going to be run ourselves instead of, instead of, you know, dragging our heels until they do it for us. You know, we need to take a short break right here. Um, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. Marketing and brand agencies can be really unhelpful sometimes. I mean, you pay them and you have meetings, but there doesn't always seem to be real value created. Sure, they may make you a logo or a website and you talk about the image your company wants to project, but that is not always reflected in the bottom line in the form of actual revenue. For a lot of startups, everything has got to feed the bottom line just so they can survive. That's what Blunt Branding does. They feed your bottom line. Blunt is very different from other agencies because their principals, Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia, are experts in psychological marketing. 
For example, they don't just write copy for your website. They write copy that includes hooks and triggers for every Myers-Briggs personality type. Most copywriters tend to write only for people who think like them. Blunt branding does better than that. They reach all your potential customers. In fact, if there is a certain kind of customer that you don't want, say argumentative folks, Blunt will write you copy that attracts everyone else, but will tend to repel the kind of customer that gives you grief. I'm not kidding. The strategy is used by their attorney clients all the time. Your brand is much more than a logo. You see, most customers wait for some company to wow them with something more than they came shopping for, especially when there are so many options, right? They're looking for a brand to anticipate their questions or solve their problems or just make them feel seen, heard, and valued. I know that can sound corny, but we all know that we buy from the companies we feel most engaged with, and blunt branding will get them climbing over your competitors to get to you. If you cannot risk business failure, you should be working with a marketing team who understands that their goal is not just to make you pretty, but to directly increase your sales success too. Go to BluntBranding.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Aaron Sullivan of Trative. So Aaron, before the break, we were talking about the new policies that you guys have implemented to pesticide test all of the trim that's going through, and you're finding that the market is responding really strongly to that and switching to buying the stuff that has been tested. And that is great for everybody across the board. When I was receiving the demo of the platform, platform, I noticed that some of the sellers didn't have their certifications up, their their uh, uh, potency testing and such. So do you find that that is simply that um, the producers, it's their follow through getting it actually onto their listing or that they aren't having it tested or that, um, yeah, I guess it's just one of those two. I mean, why, why, why do you find that they're not all there? I would think that that would be kind of a universal thing. Absolutely. So, so sometimes it depends on when the product was posted. If the, if the product's been up for a week, then more than likely the, the lab test has been already uploaded. Now, if they just posted the product, it might take a day to sometimes even three for the lab test to actually come back. And so what we'll do is, is because delivery you know, can take um, anywhere from two to three days, then um, oftentimes there is a little bit of a wait where we actually have the opportunity to let them go get the test results, bring them back before the product's actually sold. But in any case, um, if a product is sold, whether or not we have a posted lab result or not, the lab result will always be um, uh, gathered and then provided to the dispensary that's purchasing um, at the point of delivery uh, to ensure that, that, that nothing ever gets delivered or purchased without certified lab results um, traveling with it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's tested for heavy metals, solvents, pathogens, potency, and pesticides. That just means for that particular product, it meets the state testing requirements, whatever they may be for that particular product. In the case of our trim, we've gone above and beyond the state required tests uh, to ensure that it's also tested for the 15 different uh, pesticides um, that the state of Colorado currently recalls for. Yeah, right on. And I can imagine how you know we'd all like all of the products to be tested for pesticides, but that's, that's especially important in the trim market because we know that most of that stuff is going to be uh, concentrated into oil, which if it's got pesticides means that the pesticides are going to be concentrated too. And man, I don't want to be dabbing that stuff. Hell, I don't even want to be eating that in an edible. 
Absolutely. And, and, and frankly, Shango, that's, that's why this is an easier problem than, than many people think. You know, trim comes from flour. You know, manufacturing products come from trim and flour. Edibles come from trim and flour. Everything comes from trim and flour. And so if there was a requirement, even during the growing process, maybe at one or two stages and then eventually at harvest, um, to test just the full bulk plant for pesticides, before it enters the rest of the supply chain from that cultivator, you can stem pesticide adulteration and contamination across the entire market by simply testing the flour before it's been completely cured, before it's been completely dried, before it's been trimmed, before it's now in the supply chain and nobody knows what happened to it. It grows from one place and, and you can test those for pesticides. And literally, unless you're worried about, you know, black market product moving its way into manufacturing facilities, which frankly is a much larger issue than pesticide testing, yeah, yeah. Um, then, then, then you're really, you're able to, to sort of stem the flow of pesticides and, 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 and uh, nip, that, nip that in the bud very early. And, and that's really what we're looking to do in the new markets and, and help Colorado get to that point where there isn't a product sold that could possibly have pesticides in it. It's wonderful that we're giving, you know, medicines and medications to small children with seizure disorders for the first time in their lives. You know, they can live a day without a seizure and actually start to grow as a human being. But we're, we're, we're not doing the service if that same medicine that, that, that's providing them the first relief in their, in, in their short life that they've had, um, we're also you know, heavily dosing them with carcinogenic pesticides. That's just, it's, it's almost beyond me that, that, that we're allowing that to happen. And so far the state, you know, most of the state governments, I think Oregon might be one of the exceptions, um, hasn't been able to adequately attack this issue. And so private enterprise is gonna have to do it. So I can see how, you know, the trim that is in the market being used for these concentrates is going to be a higher quality because of your, you know, your new policy. But it also, you know, going back to the price of trim, I can imagine that the trim market is like insanely hot since it's a precursor for pretty much, you know, all of the value added products. I mean, yeah, of course the flower market is hot, but, you know, this, this huge portion of the rest of the market are all of all of these edibles and dabs and RSO and all of these other things that are all from trim. I can't imagine that trim lasts very long in the marketplace before it's picked up. No, typically we have buyers for trim before it's posted and tested. Yeah, we, we, we always have requests for trim. I mean, every once in a while something will sit on there for 24 to 48 hours, but it's pretty rare when trim's not uh, purchased up right away. And, and you know, it's because, yeah, I mean, the, the manufacturer's margins um, are most impacted by the oil and the cost of the goods of the actual THC going into the product. I mean, in many cases, they comprise 70% of the cost of goods sold. So if you can, if you can create oil from a product that you're buying for $350 to $500 a pound, and it has a yield that's at least half of what full flour, you know, at 15 to 1800 would do, um, then yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty good way to help pad the margins and, and, and be more competitive. I can imagine too that um, you know with the demand being that high, um, there are definitely days that you know low end or unfinished flour gets sucked up by the trim people real fast. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's actually quite a few contract grows that produce you know what wouldn't be shelf quality outdoor but i mean you know it's 16% thc you don't have to trim it it's whole plant i mean there's definitely a full commodity market out there for manufacturing grade cannabis that's already um, you know sort of in production and i think as you see price compression on the flower side as supply increases over time you'll probably see 
um, those trim prices come down um, and, and that commodity uh, level flour probably moving down into the current trim price points. And you know, many products I think in the future, especially concentrates, will probably be whole plant extracts because that's what the market's going to demand because price has gone low enough on flour to be able to accommodate that sort of manufacturing um, method. And that's really creating a whole new tier of producer because, you know, historically in the U.S., I mean, the, 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 the really bad stuff was all being smuggled in from Mexico as brickweed. But the stuff mm-hmm. that was here or was coming in from uh, uh, B.C., uh, Canada, British Columbia, um, it was all, you know, nice, kind nugs. And that's mm-hmm. what everybody wanted to have was to sell things that, that were selling bag appeal. But, you know, it takes a lot of extra effort and love mm-hmm. to get stuff that looks looks that incredible. And so now there's a whole nother tier I can imagine evolving of people who are like, all right, well, we're not going to use pesticides, but we're also not going to put in all the extra effort that makes it gorgeous right. because we're just going to sell a hell of a lot of this into manufacturing. No, you're absolutely right. And actually, I'm so I'm glad you bring this up. And, and so there's certain people that have, a lot of people that have invested a lot into like indoor grows and indoor warehouses. So you know, there are brands out there right now that are going to be built on indoor warehouse grows. Good, high-quality product. You know, it looks as nice curb appeal. It's coming out of these indoor grows. And a lot of vertically integrated businesses in, in climates that aren't conducive to outdoor greenhouse growing have indoor grows. And those indoor grows are going to help build those brands. But for those entrepreneurs that are looking to get into the industry now that haven't been building a brand in Colorado for three to four years and don't already have an indoor grow, I would highly recommend, I would stress that anyone looking to move into cultivation now um, invest in, in, in greenhouses because the greenhouse technology is getting so good that, that people can produce flour that looks, feels, um, and tastes like indoor um, hydroponic, uh, but they were able to do it in a greenhouse system at one-fourth or one-fifth the cost of goods sold. And and you know we're already seeing in Colorado when you have when you have a lot of businesses that are making money there's a lot of less perceived risk in the market which causes those less bold um, and less risk averse entrepreneurs to enter the market and so you have a, a, a huge flood right now in Colorado um, of new cultivators who who see you know uh, the money moving and, and want to get in and there's less perceived risk and so they're all coming in and we have massive price compression in Colorado now. right now. I, I, w- I would dare to say 15% of the cultivation businesses in business in Colorado right now will not be in business this time next year um, because the price of flour sold has just come down to where that high price point that indoor used to get you isn't being achieved but their cost of goods are very, very high. So that movement to good premium um, greenhouse um, and I would say commodity level manufacturing quality outdoor um, is probably going to be the future of the market. It doesn't mean those businesses you know, are going are gonna to all of a sudden go out of business in the next four years. If you have an indoor grow near you know, Las Vegas, it's going to be tough for anyone to grow you know, a good cr- premium outdoor there um, uh, or, because the climate doesn't, isn't conducive to it. So they'll make money, but as the market matures, as competition increases, as the federal government might open up, you know, interstate commerce, that competition is going to get a lot stiffer, that price compression is going to get even worse, and the price of that product is going to come down. And, and you know, the, 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 the heydays of I can just start a cannabis business and make a ton of money is over. You have to pay attention to cash flows. You have to pay attention to cost of goods sold because it's not, uh, you know, it might still be a wild west market, uh, but it's certainly not the green rush market 
um, that it was in, you know, say 2011, 2012. You know, it, it comes in waves, but there's a lot of interest now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And heck, just wait until the wave happens uh, when we start allowing uh, international trade. In absolutely. Canada. I mean, my God. You know, um, your point uh, is well made that it takes more than just opening a cannabis business to be in the game now and to be successful because of the price compression. You can't you can't just have uh, skills on the cannabis side or on the business side. It's really no. time for people who have an understanding of both. You know, when um, when when I first started in the industry, I was providing consulting to cannabis folks who were prohibition era growers who didn't really have um, you know business uh, you know legal business experience, and so mm -hmm. I was helping them make the transition and and you know understand sales cycles and things like that. At the same time, there were people who owned you know a chain of dry cleaners and they wanted to sell their dry cleaners and, and put all their money in cannabis and they didn't know mm -hmm. cannabis and so mm -hmm. they needed somebody who spoke their language who could teach them cannabis and what you're describing is the, the, the sustainable businesses in cannabis are going to be run by management who have got both sets of skills so that you can both create a good product and see opportunities but also do it in an efficient way so you can keep your prices low. You hit it on the head. I mean, most of the successful businesses, and, and, and this is, listen, this is the cannabis industry. It's been, it's been legally illegal for two decades, you know, so nothing should surprise us at this point. Most of the successful businesses that I interact with have somebody on the business side who knows how to execute on fundamentals. They come from a professional market where there was a sh tremendous amount of competition. <laughs> And, uh, and they know how to execute on fundamentals. They know how to watch cash flows. They know how to finance. They know how to capitalize the company. They know how to hire employees correctly. They know how to, they know how to make sure that they don't make you know, big red line risk uh, mistakes. That being said, I know a bunch of those guys, a bunch of those women that grow subpar product and can't sell it, no matter how good their fundamentals are. You have, the best businesses have a fundamentals person and they have some that came from the black market or maybe the gray market because they're the only ones that have been learning how to do product creation and innovation for the last two decades. Um, you're not gonna learn that in a year. And so you really do, you have to have someone that knows how to grow a good quality product. You know, we, we have people that come to us all the time and say, hey, I'm putting in a 100,000 square foot grow. I'm putting in a 200,000 square foot grow. And, and that sounds sexy, that sounds awesome. Uh, but managing a grow of that size is incredibly challenging especially for the master growers who have been growing on 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 um, square foot plots in Mendocino and in, and in places in Humboldt. Y you have to find really talented master growers that have been doing this at scale for the last 10 years and bring them into a well-capitalized organization buying a 100 or 200,000 square foot grow. There's a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time there's not a lot of people that know how to manage a quality grow of 300,000 square feet at scale anywhere. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, there's a lack of that talent. Absolutely. And so, so you have these business people coming in that want to scale. And you have these really talented growers who know how to grow really quality weed in a basement, in a house, on a, on a, on a small plot you know, in, 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 in Northern California. And, and, and so you have to find a really talented you know, black or gray market um, individual to bring into your company that you believe not only knows, just doesn't just check the block. Oh, you've grown weed before. They might've grown crappy weed. You don't know. Just because they've grown it in the black or gray market does not mean that it's good. 
You've got to find the specially talented person that you believe can do that at scale while you execute on fundamentals. It's very challenging. Right on. So I want to I want to hit one more thread before mm-hmm. we go to commercial, and that mm-hmm. is, you know, we're talking about the kinds of customers that you have that are probably most likely to succeed. And going through your platform, um, you know, I saw that you know the the growers have to you know let you know if the what their product looks like changes so that they can mm-hmm. upgrade their photo. If they mm-hmm. change something about a strain or a product, they have to make sure to update their listings. Um, and you know, when you've got people who are helping them and advising them, um, I find it very interesting because a big part of what you do is not the technology alone of the platform and, and you know that your developers are working on, but you've got to have this big contingent that is customer service based mm-hmm. to kind of help your customers wrap their head around the product itself, the service itself, but then also to, to reach out to them so the growers look good enough on the site to actually make a sale. And I, and I bet you that's a big educational sales process with them. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is, this is something that I believe applies to all companies in, in this very new fast-paced world that, that, that we find ourselves in. And it's something that Silicon Valley did a very poor job um, between 2000 and 2010 with the explosion of computing technology, explosion and, and commoditization of server space, is that there's been a period of time in, I'd say, the evolution of business models, uh, you know, industry, industries-wide, um, that thought, hey, computers can do so much for us, we'll make them do all this perfunctory stuff for us and we'll make a lot of money because our margins are 93 or 94 percent. And, 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 and that's all good until a business comes along that does all the automated stuff you do and then backs it up with really good people and really good services. You know, we call it value-added marketplaces or service or value-added services to a marketplace or a platform. Um, every business, every single business in the entire world is a relationships-based business backed up with technology, not the other way around. And it's taken us about a decade or a decade and a half, um, especially on the peninsula, up where there's a lot of innovation, to learn that technology is here to make humans uh, enabled to do better, not to completely um, automate us out of existence. You know, our, our, sales and our sales reps and our account executives, 80% of the t- their time, they spend talking to a customer. 20% of the time, they spend doing back office work. You know, for most of our clients that we interface with, it's the opposite. They're spending 80% of their time managing orders and like these perfunctory, rudimentary tasks. And then 20% of their time is actually talking to the customer because interaction with the customer is not the same um, as service to the customer. You know, if I call to say, hey, do you, how many pounds of this do you have? Does this order look good? Did I give you enough? You know, uh, okay, it's going to be there at three on Thursday. Thanks so much for ordering. That's a perfunctory, rudimentary interaction. That can be done digitally. But when they call and take that same five minutes and say, hey, you know, how did that order go? Hey, I heard you just had a baby. Congratulations. How are things going at work? Is there anything I can do to help make your wholesale um, management you know, easier over the next couple of weeks as, as, as you, know, you, you, you come back into work? Whatever it may be, that's real customer service. And that's why we have technology. It's not because technology is the answer. It's just an enabler. That is incredibly well said, Aaron. So, hey, we need to take another short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. 
The Gontrepreneur podcast is listened to by tens of thousands of cannabis entrepreneurs and enthusiasts every single week. These folks are most likely your target customers, and we'd like to introduce you to each other. Our down-to-earth and information-rich commercial breaks can deliver your message to the cannabis business community and others who just find relief in getting high. If you want to reach out and connect with our audience in the most personal way that we can offer, go ahead and drop us an email at grow at gontrepreneur.com and we can talk about you becoming a commercial sponsor of the podcast. Thanks for listening and being part of the Gontrepreneur family. Now back to the show. Welcome back. You are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I am your host, Shango Lohs, and our guest this week is Aaron Sullivan of Trative. So, Aaron, before the break, we were talking about the last step of the process of getting the actual products to the retailer from the mm-hmm. producer. And so I'm really curious because um, that could be a sticky wicket, right? Um, do you actually handle the product yourself and make the deliveries, or are you just setting up the deal and then the, the producer is actually making the delivery? to the retailer? Yeah, there's a little nuance to that answer. I mean, the long story short is it depends on the market and it depends on where you are geographically within that market. So, you know, in Colorado, uh, we've largely used a courier, um, great courier, green parcel service. They do a lot of good work for us um, in Colorado. Um, You know, based on cost, they've actually stopped servicing a couple areas um, that will be putting one truck in to help provide coverage for that area. And, and that's very much a, sort of a partnership uh, logistics um, system that we have set up in Colorado. Um, in Oregon, we're actually in discussions with two groups right now on whether or not we're going to contract it out or if we'll eventually have to put our own um, vehicles in. Um, in California, much the same way, we have um, a series of vehicles that we put in and operate um, and then work through a few partners for the other areas. I think, you know, are envi- we envision having most of the logistics assets in-house or having one or two service level agreements with very qualified and uh, uh, reputable um, couriers that that I don't think we have yet to identify, right? It could be Green Parcel Service, it could be our partners in California. None of us have been in business long enough to find out who's really going to push that that customer service um, um, envelope the most. And the reason we do that is just like Amazon, your user experience is everything from when you order to when you receive it um, in a day and when you're happy to send it back because it's not what you needed and they have an easy process that's repeatable every single time. You know, our businesses like that. And so the logistics aspect, the actual delivery of the product, that's part of the user experience. And we have to be able to control that user experience to give them the best experience, a consistent experience every time. We hope to do that in the less, you know, a lesser capitally intensive nature than having to invest in your own logistics assets, but sometimes that's just not possible. So it really depends on the state, the market, the geography. Uh, we use a combination of, but always strive to ensure that that user experience um, is as best as it can be. So, so at that final point, if there is some dispute resolution needed, how does that play out? Say, for example, if the delivery arrives and you guys have set up the deal and you know the flower isn't of the quality of the pictures or, or there's a quantity issue or something, what happens in that moment between the delivery driver and the receiving person that keeps everybody you know, playing nice? You know, yeah, it's, um, that's a challenging area that that I think, you know, even if you're an individual business doing self-distribution, you're going to have to deal with those things. Um, for us, we, we obviously are trying to scale, and we're also trying to make that, that user experience as, um, um, as easy as possible. And so, again, that actually comes down to geography. Depending on where you are, we have a different process. 
you know, if we're delivering to a remote area that we only get to once a week and they're not happy with something, we'll oftentimes try to solve that there. Meaning maybe it's just a cost adjustment. Uh, maybe there was a mistake with the order. You know, our delivery driver or a courier will actually call the account executive who will call the seller and see if we can't um, um, find a resolution at that particular moment. Um, but if the buyer doesn't want to do that, if the buyer is just not happy, we have free returns. So they just, it's rejection at the door. They say, I don't want this one. We manifest it back. Um, the seller's already contracted with us to, to receive that. So, you know, the, the whole buyer's remorse is a big barrier for businesses ordering online because they can't see or taste it. But in reality, our returns are actually quite low. Um, and so we just, we just have the policy of free returns, no questions asked. At the door, you can return it. Um, if you accept the product and find later that you don't want it, we have a couple other procedures in place for that um, as well. But it's uh, it's it's uh, you know certainly our preference for them just to say, hey, you know, this isn't what I what I wanted. No harm, no foul. Right on. That sounds like a great way to go about it. And you know, I can imagine that because of your market share, you're kind of influencing how the how businesses interact with each other. You're helping create the social mores and the the social contract, if you will, that's happening mm -hmm. between buyers and sellers. And, and, and thinking about that while you were speaking, I was, you know, have you do you feel like you've gotten over the hump in Colorado yet, where you've you've got enough market share that you have started to become the the default setting? for people where you don't have to try so hard to sell anymore and you have enough customers uh, talking about how easy it is to work with the product that now people are just kind of coming to you as the default setting have you have you reached that milestone yet yeah so so this is what I would say is there's a number of clients that I actually want that do some level of self-distribution on their own and and the funny thing is is that's really because they had to right they've been in Colorado now for five years there was nobody providing a distribution service they had no choice but to buy their own trucks um, and 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 to build their own distribution many of those companies are actually using us for everything in their Oregon and California expansions because we have brand recognition and reputation with them um, and and Many of those sort of self-distribution companies pay anywhere between 11 and 13 percent for for their own self-distribution if they're doing it efficiently. We can do it for around four, five, or six percent, and we collect sort of you know the monetization in the in-between for much of those larger businesses that we have to provide a larger level of service for. So in Colorado, I'd say this: if you're a business or there is a business that doesn't have their own efficient self-distribution capability, we are the default. For a few of those businesses that might be you know, below $3 million in annual recurring revenue, um, but above a million in annual recurring revenue and have done some self-distribution, um, I would say I, by the end of the year, we'll likely have enough features and service sets uh, to attract that second tier of businesses. Um, so without being you know, more overly verbose than I have been, um, in Colorado, we're over the hump um, from a competition perspective, but we're not over the hump um, from a sustainable um, I guess comfortable market share perspective. If that if that adds up. Yeah, yeah, I understand yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So when so I had the opportunity to hear you speak uh, when you and I were both speaking at the mm -hmm. Green Flower uh, Cannabis Entrepreneur Summit down in LA uh, last month, mm -hmm. and and you know I knew I wanted to have you on the show because listening to you speak specifically about you know channel distribution for cannabis, you had 
insider's knowledge that I had not heard anywhere else, which would make sense because you're the first person to be doing this in the country. And so, you know, I just liked listening, you know, I became a fan real quick. And so, so I'm curious to know, what do you feel is an insight that you've discovered being on the inside of this unique commercial cannabis space that you're in, that those of us who are not in your shoes could not know yet? Oh, man, no one's going to like me when I tell them this. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Lay it out for us. Yeah. So, so, you know, this is really crappy for a lot of businesses because there's, there's a lot of small businesses that have that went through raids for 20 years that, that pushed the envelope long enough and hard enough that other states were able to adopt legislation because the, 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 the sort of you know, the taboo uh, nature of cannabis had been slowly chipped away for, for two decades, you know, starting with like AIDS patients in, 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 uh, um, in San Francisco, you know, in the, in the early and mid 90s. I mean, there's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears that have helped build this industry. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of those people that have helped build this industry because market economics are so powerful are, are likely going to find themselves either you know, outside of the industry or in a position within the industry that that wasn't as 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 sort of favorable and certainly not as profitable um, as was in in a gray uh, in a gray market. And and this is why um, this is going to go to manufacturing eventually. The ability to break down cannabinoids and terpenes in specific combinations and reformulate and compound them is likely going to be one of the largest areas of the industry, specifically for wellness and medical purposes. And unfortunately. Only large pharmaceutical companies are likely going to have the money and the capital to learn how to break those down into all of their components and to recombinate them, right? And they might be making acquisitions of businesses like Ebu or Lucid Mood that have been able to do this in, in, in the past, but that's where it's going to go. It's going to go to manufacturing because they can target specific needs. Um, and that medical market is going to be a very large market. The adult use market where they burn flour, hey, yeah, that's likely going to be big too. But but the wellness and the medical market are way behind right now, but they're going to pull way ahead, which means that you have to genetically modify the seed in order to, in order to propel certain cannabinoid production. So let's say CBV curbs hunger. We really want high CBV um, plant production because we're going to extract it. And if I can make a plant with 5% CBV instead of 0.02%, I'm going to do that as a business owner, and I'm going to hire a genetic company to build me a seed that does that, which means all the intellectual property and the money-making capability is in the genetics and the bio uh, design um, of the plants that are being grown. Then the rest of the value is in manufacturing where they can break down the specific cannabinoids and terpenes. Many of those in between are going to find themselves in, in a commodity market much like any other agricultural farming market. They don't, know that, they don't own the IP going into the ground because they've been hired to grow it by a manufacturer who needs that specific, particular cannabinoid. And then the value is going to be created by the manufacturing company. To be able to grow really high profitable cannabis is going to be held by a very small percentage of the market. I would say 15 to 20 percent, um, much like uh, coffee, boutique coffee, you know, 18 percent or so. And, and for, those, for, for many of those businesses, I feel really sorry because they helped build the industry and, and, and that big fear that everybody has about big business coming in, they're absolutely going to come in. And the way that they come in is not going out and acquiring 15 grows. They go out and they acquire 
biotechnology that allows them to modify the seed and then manufacturing base that can break it down. And then they just contract farm it at low margins. You know, so if you're in the industry now, you know, I would look very heavily at brand building because those brands are going to be the ones that after it goes commodity are able to sell into larger organizations that are trying to consolidate the market. You have to build your business for what is going to be desirable for an acquisition in the next three to five years or build your business with all of those macro level economic powerhouses at play so that in three to five years when you want to hold on to your company and not sell it, you're in a position to be able to do that. Um, but the market in the industry is going a direction that, that, that most of us can't control. It's not even anyone in, in particular business doing it. It's not Southern Wine Spirits. It's not Procter & Gamble. It's not Cisco. There's not any one particular company that's causing the market to do this. It's just economics. And they're not going to stop for anybody. And we have to prepare for those or we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt in, in three to five years. You know, that's a, a really sobering uh, cautionary tale. And, you know, over the over the year that we've been on the on the I was going to say on the air, but but streaming, um, this is a common theme that we've heard from, uh, you know, the scientists we've talked to people who are in relationship with pharmaceuticals that, mm -hmm. you know, the future of medical cannabis is patented genetics, mm -hmm. people holding their IP and yeah. um, you know genetic line insertion so that you can create a plant that is uh, customized for a particular patient. Now, mm -hmm. now you know the the genetic uh, you know modulation does not necessarily have to take place. Also, in the you know people who are burning flowers and they want it to be organic and you know only totally. hybridized, right? So it's it, they're totally. going to be different markets. Yep. But but the commoditization of medical and people uh, using the oils that they're, you know, going to custom blend, uh, you know, I, I, everyone seems to agree that that's the future. Well, you know, that's all the time we have for today, Aaron. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing the experience that you have gathered, uh, you know, being a leader in Colorado and, uh, and getting ready to take your company national. Thank you, Shango. It was a pleasure being on, and 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 we're not here to scare anybody. You know, it's just it, knowledge is power, and arming people with with information, even if it's unsavory information, allows you to pivot your business model and prepare. And so, I hope if anything, we we were able to uh, both get people excited, but also you know give them some good, as you said, sobering cautionary tales on on how to ensure that that you can be successful in spite of things that might seem out of your control. Aaron Sullivan is founder of Trative. You can find out more at Trative.com. That's T-R-A-D-I-V.com. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur podcast in the podcast section at Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news, product reviews, and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcriptions of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and in Google Play. For info on me and where I'll be speaking, you can go to shangolos.com. Do you have a company that wants to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email grow at Gontrepreneur.com to find out how. Today's show is produced by Michael Rowe. I'm your host, Shango Los. Thank you.